Uh, let's start with a short guided meditation, okay? to your uh, body sitting. Uh, Feel the pressure of your rear end on the chair or on the cushion. Uh, Release your weight to the support of the chair or cushion and into the earth beneath and feel your body supported by the earth. And notice how uh, when you bring your awareness to, to the body, uh, to the sensation of being the body. Uh, right away, there's a quality of stillness very quickly. Uh, letting your body uh, be uplifted from within. Uh, the back part of the head uh, stretching up toward the sky, the chin tucked in, uh, the shoulders squared and relaxed, and the chest open. Feels like the body is, is opening up like a blossom. Noticing the quality of the awareness itself. How it's not just inside your brain, the awareness is everywhere. And feel your breathing, Uh, strong, uh, 
vivid breath in, a deep, slow breath out. Every time you breathe in, you're literally uh, renewing your life, uh, bringing freshness to your life. And every time you breathe out, you're letting go of everything extra, resting in awareness and opening yourself for the next moment. And every time you breathe in, every time you breathe out, that's always happening. So this uh, is what it feels like to be alive. Uh, to be embodied. To be breathing. Uh, that there is awareness. This is the basic feeling of being alive. It's the foundation for everything you have ever accomplished or experienced, and everything you ever will accomplish or experience all depends on this reality of breath and body and awareness, consciousness. And we don't really know exactly what it is or where it comes from, why it appears here, this gift. And we don't know how long it lasts. It's not something uh, particularly uh, spiritual or mystical or metaphysical. It's quite immediate, concrete. You feel it. And life.
Thank you. So there, there's a miracle for you. Life. Being alive. Everything uh, depends on this. But uh, it's stunning, isn't it, the way we take it completely for granted. All of our life's experiences and all of our problems and all of our issues and all the things we're struggling with all would not mean anything if we weren't alive, right? They wouldn't be there. <laughs> it's because we're alive that we have these problems. Yeah, so we're lucky to have these problems. Someday we won't have them anymore. But you could spend your whole life and never notice that you're alive. Never stop thinking about all your problems and all the things you want and all the things you're doing long enough to notice there's this gift of life. And this is what it feels like. So I think it's a very good habit to pick up this habit of noticing, I am alive. It's not automatic, and it's not forever, and this is what it's like. I think that's really what meditation is, just remembering that we're alive and feeling that life and appreciating it. And that feeling of being alive, this awareness that is characteristic of it, which doesn't really have a boundary. It's the source of compassion. In fact, this actually is compassion. This life, this feeling of being alive, this actual experience of living, is compassion. Uh, in Zen, uh, there's a story about compassion. Uh, it's like all Zen stories, it's a conversation uh, between uh, two people, in this case, two Dharma brothers, an elder and a younger. And the younger brother, uh, Yunyan, says to the elder brother, Dawu, how come the Bodhisattva of compassion has so many hands and eyes? Because the statue of the Bodhisattva of compassion is often depicted with myriad, you know, many, many heads on top of each other, and many, many arms, uh, and in each hand, the palm of each hand is an, is an eye. So Bodhisattva of Compassion has many, many hands and eyes to uh, hear the cries of the world, see the troubles of the world, and hands to help to do something about it. So Yunyan says, how come the Bodhisattva of Compassion has so many hands and eyes? And Dawu says, oh, it's just like reaching back for your pillow in the dark. Just like reaching back for your pillow in the dark. I, I did this myself last night. I woke up and I reached back and somehow I woke up thinking, not thinking even, but feeling that it would be nice if the pillow were a little cooler. Did you ever have that? <laughs> wake up like that? Why would you wake up? Who knows, but you do. You wake up and you just turn the pillow a little bit. Isn't it so nice? <laughs> cool. Hello. 
So he says, that's compassion. It's just like reaching back for your pillow in the dark. In other words, it's not a big deal. It's not a big banner that says compassion. It's just something very natural, almost unconscious, that you do to bring a little bit more care, a little bit more comfort, a little bit more ease into the world, into your own life and into the lives of others. So compassion is just a natural gesture that we all make. That's what he's saying. So compassion is not a special thing. Compassion is just the way we live. And Yunyan says, oh, that's really good. I understand now. And Dawu says, uh, well, what do you understand? And Yunyan says, uh, the whole body is covered with hands and eyes. The whole body is covered with hands and eyes. And Dawu says, well, that's pretty good. But it's only 80 or 90 percent. And so Yunyan says, well, what do you say, older brother? And Dawu says, the whole body is nothing but hands and eyes. In other words, he's saying, you know, compassion is being itself. Compassion is life itself. This life that comes in fresh with every breath and that we let go of in peace with every breath. This is already compassion. This is already love. When you really appreciate what it means to be alive with a body and breathing and awareness in this amazing uh, world with others, you understand that you're swimming in an ocean of compassion. Every step you ever take is a step in compassion. Did you ever think, you know, why, why is there anything at all? Why, why just not a big blank with nothing? I mean, in a way, wouldn't it be more likely, right? What would be more likely, that there's a big blank, nothing, or that there's all of this? I mean, look at this room. Every single person's face is completely different from every other person's face. How could that be? So unlikely. Much more likely that pfft, nothing. Nothing ever exists. It really makes sense that there would be nothing existing. And yet, why is there all this? Where does it come from? What produces it? And why would it be produced? This world, which is so bright. I mean, light itself. Nobody even knows what it is. But, you know, we all know how happy we are to see the sun rise and how bittersweet and how beautiful it is to see the sun set. Because we're made to feel those things in this world. The sun, the moon, the stars, the grass, trees, flowers, and the variety of them and how beautiful they are. And you and me and all of our joys 
and sorrows, and even all of our horrible troubles that we get into with one another, and all of our despair and all of our confusion, even that is compassion. <coughs> even that is amazingly beautiful for its poignancy and its complexity. The arising of every single thing, that it comes at all, that we can experience it. That is compassion. That's what these old-time Chan guys, uh, from Zen guys from China, are sharing together. But that's just one side, isn't it? The other side is, how come we can't live this compassion? The other side is, how come it's so difficult to survive this broken world? Because we have to be honest and notice that even though it's a beautiful idea, this compassion, and, and even though maybe, you know, when we hear about it, we say it's true, still, we'll get up from our chairs and we'll go forth into our lives and there's going to be a lot of trouble. And we're going to have a lot of suffering and a lot of difficulty. Because we can't really feel that compassion very often. Even if we believe it's there, we don't feel it. And it's difficult to live it. Most of the time, we don't live it. Most of the time, we're spun around by the energy of our isolation. We're spun around by our self-defensiveness, by our fear, our resentment, our confusion, and our despair at conditions in the world when we look around us. That's mostly really what we feel, isn't it? We don't feel an ocean of compassion. So, we, so even though it may actually be true, and I believe it, you know, that we're swimming in an ocean of compassion, all of us are together all the time, Actually, we don't really know that, and we don't feel it. That's why we need some training, we need some practice. We need a way of step-by-step -step, uh, understanding better, a way to access the compassion that's actually there all around us all the time. We need a way to overcome our tremendous habit, so compelling, this habit of fear and resistance and self-protection. How come we do that? How come we are so resistant? I mean, it sounds like such a good idea, doesn't it? You know, to just swim in an ocean of compassion, to release ourselves to complete love. Why would we... Why would we not want to do that? Why would we hold back from that and make such a misery for ourselves? I think it's because compassion, though it's beautiful and the most satisfying thing, requires that we be willing to accept suffering. That we be willing, because that's what compassion means. Compassion means that we're willing to say, okay, I accept this suffering of myself. I accept this suffering of others. And when we're willing to do that, 
compassion arises and flows everywhere. So on the one hand, you know, this is our situation, right? On the one hand, there is no suffering. Being arises in a flow, in a flood of compassion, and it passes away like a dream. Life goes on and on and on. And that's compassion, and everything is beautiful. On the other hand, there's lots of suffering. And we want certain things, and we can't understand why we don't get them. And we're lonely, and we're afraid, and we suffer lots of things. Sickness. We get old. We die. We experience lots of loss and pain and sorrow. So what are we going to do? Well, there's only one thing to do. We undertake spiritual practice so we can understand and embrace our life as it really is. So we can see through uh, the clinging and the delusion that is what really creates this world of pain that we're living in. And when we're willing to do that, when through our practice we are willing to face our life as it is and embrace what our life is about, including the suffering, the result of that is that our, our heart just falls wide open. And we feel uh, the sympathy and the love and the compassion that is inherent in being itself. Life really is compassion. It flows forth in compassion. It's there in us. Now we can feel it when we're willing uh, to face how it really is. And then, when we have to suffer, it'll be okay, you know, because we will. We can't escape these inevitable aspects of living. Living is dying, right? Yeah. So we have to accept all of it. When we can accept all of it as it is, we can release ourselves to that flow of compassion and it'll be okay. Even the suffering will be beautiful. It'll be all right. There'll be a tremendous uh, nobility in it. And we'll feel uh, courage and love, even in the middle of our suffering. So I, uh, some time ago, uh, was studying uh, lots of uh, Buddhist texts about compassion. Because uh, compassion really is the only point of Zen practice. We sit in meditation with intensity for that reason, so that we can understand our life and release ourselves to compassion. But in, but in most Zen places, they don't talk about compassion that much. Because it's implicit. That story that I told you is like a typical Zen story about compassion. It doesn't sound very warm and fuzzy, does it, at first? You know? So I thought, well, I should go and find some really good compassion texts from other traditions. So I found a, a good one from the Tibetan tradition. And I went around uh, to all of our Zen groups in, in our uh, we have a, a network of groups here and there 
Uh, and so I would go around to different groups in our network and talk about this text. And the people really enjoyed it and made transcripts of my talks. And so I made it into a little book. And I've been uh, actually going all around uh, talking about this because I really think that uh, the one thing that you can be sure is helpful is compassion. Because we have a lot of social problems, I think, in our world. You know, we have a lot of problems. And uh, things are not getting better. And solutions are not obvious. Or, or they're difficult. But the one thing you know would, will help is compassion. Not to say that it's the only thing we need to do, but we need compassion. We need, really need to care for each other. We really need to stop being so defensive. So I think I, I feel like a missionary zeal about this topic of compassion. It's a good thing. And there's nobody who doesn't need more of it. As much of it as there is and we think we feel, there's more that we could feel. The, the, the extent to which we can open our hearts and care about each other is nearly infinite. So I'm happy to go wherever I go and talk about compassion. And then when they call me up and they said, oh, we don't have anybody to talk on this Monday night, I said, good, another excuse to talk <laughs> about compassion. Because it's so important. So the text that, I, uh, that the book is about is, uh, the, book is the title of the book is Training in Compassion. Uh, Zen teachings on the practice of lojong. Lojong is the Tibetan Buddhist term for training the heart, training the mind in compassion. So I'm doing a kind of a Zen-flavored commentary to this traditional Indo-Tibetan text. And the text has seven points of training the heart. And uh, there are 59 little practice slogans organized under those seven points. And the idea is that you would take these little slogans as a kind of practice watchword. You'd think about them, you'd study them, you'd repeat them to yourself. You'd really bring them so that they were uppermost in your mind. And then they would pop into your mind whenever you were in trouble. All of a sudden, a little practice slogan would pop into your mind. And it would say, whoa, wait a minute. And maybe I, let me readjust now that that popped into my mind. So the seven points uh, under which the 59 slogans are organized, uh, I'll explain them to you briefly. Uh, the first one is called, the first point, resolve to begin. The understanding here is that this is a serious undertaking. Probably it takes you your whole life. People think, oh, spiritual practice, that's good. I'll do a couple weekends, and then, good, I'll go on to other things. <laughs> what other things would there be? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not a weekend, uh, or, or even, uh, a, even a program that lasts for nine months. It's not even that. Actually, uh, it's your whole life, right, from beginning to end. So uh, you need to check your motivation. You need to ask yourself in the beginning, under this first point, resolve to begin. There's, it's a whole practice of somewhat systematically thinking, you know, okay, what am I doing here? What, 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 is, what is this life about for me? And how has it been going so far? And what do I think about from now on? And what do I really want to do about it? And how serious am I? 
and you, and you spend some time exploring that. Resolve to begin. Second point is train in compassion. And it's divided into two parts, absolute compassion and relative compassion. And in a way, that's what I was talking about in the beginning, in my introductory words. Absolute compassion is the fact that being itself is compassion. There's nothing but compassion. You open your eyes in the morning and you only see compassion. So everything is actually okay. And all your problems are like smoke. Absolute compassion. Relative compassion, you got a lot of problems. <laughs> we all do. And we need to fix those problems. We need to help one another work on them. We need both sides. We need absolute compassion. Without absolute compassion, relative compassion will do us all in. Our problems are too overwhelming just for one person. One's own problems are too overwhelming, let alone the problems of each other. We can't do it. That's why we need the absolute compassion. We need to understand that we are supported. Love is all around us. But if there's only love all around us, and we ignore everybody's problems, well, what kind of love would that be? Oh, you're suffering? Oh, too bad for you. I'm full of love. <laughs> what good is that? So in other words, we need both. So that's, that's the second point, is absolute and relative compassion, and how to train and develop each one. There's slogans for developing each one of those. And the next point, um, the third point is, turn all difficulties into the path. When difficult things arise, don't think, oh no, I'm off the, I fell off the path. Things have gotten hard, I, can't, I guess I can't go to Spirit Rock, that's too bad, it was a good idea, but I'm, now things are very difficult. No, that's when you have to learn how to make use of all the difficult things that happen in a lifetime for deepening your understanding and your practice. That, that's why difficult things happen to you, so you can learn something from them. So you can grow and develop. And if you let them set you back endlessly, well, you'll never, you'll never get anywhere, will you? So you have to learn how to turn difficulties into the path. The fourth point is make practice your whole life. Don't think that spiritual practice is this nice thing that you could do on your list of many other good things to do. You know, eat organic, yoga class. <laughs> cycle 10 miles a day, read a good book, spiritual practice. You don't have time for all that. <laughs> and spiritual practice usually on the bottom of the list because all the other things kind of make sense, but spiritual practice, <laughs> eh, we're not so sure. So that's the one thing that we don't get to. But the idea here is don't think of spiritual practice as a nice activity. It is not a nice activity. <laughs> It's the way you do all your activities. It's the way you live your life. What is the quality of heart that you bring to your yoga class and your organic food and all that, and, and your friendships, and your, all your activities? How do you do those things? What's, what's, what's your spirit? What's your energy? What's your motivation? What's your mind? So that's the next point. Make practice your whole life. And the fifth point of the seven points of mind training is assess and extend. Learn how to see how you're doing. Learn how to check yourself 
And when you see that you're going down a confusing, unprofitable pathway, know what the signs of that are, make use of that, come back and go ahead. Know how to do that for yourself. Very important. And there's a number of slogans that help you with that uh, fifth point. The sixth point is the discipline of relationships. Again, we commonly think of spiritual practice as a private affair, something that's not polite to be discussed in mixed company. It's easier to discuss sex and money than one's spiritual practice in mixed company, because it's private. But no, it's not private. Our spiritual practice uh, comes forth in the way that we interact with every single person in our lives, especially there the quality of our relationships. And, and, and let's be honest, human relationships are not too easy, are they? No, they're not. I'm always reminded of uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's famous quotation. You all know this one. Hell is other people. <laughs> well, uh, yes, Jean-Paul Sartre was a French intellectual, but nevertheless, uh, maybe he was extreme, but I think we can all relate to this. Uh, I was doing fine until she came along, you know. <laughs> People are so difficult. They, they, they seem to have their own ideas that are different from ours. You notice this? <laughs> they want to do things that we don't want to do. They want to, they, they have opinions that we, we don't share. And this is all very painful and difficult to negotiate. And yet, it's our connection with each other that really helps us to understand ourselves and to get beyond ourselves, because that's our problem. We have to get beyond ourselves. So what's, what's the way to do that? What's the way to make every relationship a spiritual practice itself, regardless of whether the person we're relating to themselves is doing spiritual practice. That's immaterial. Our connection to that person is an opportunity for us to learn something about ourselves, about our human life, and about compassion. And the last point is, seventh point of mind training, is living with ease in a crazy world. We, we acknowledge then that we don't have to wait until the world is straightened out for us to be happy and live with some grace and ease because it will be a very long wait. And I think, you know, when you analyze it, a lot of us actually think that way. I mean, if, you know, not really, but if you look a little bit more deeply into our feelings about the world, we, we, it's like that. It's like, I can't be happy because the world is such a wreck. And I won't be happy until the world is straightened out. That's why I'm so mad about it. You know, I think there's a lot of, lot of the way we feel about the world around us is like that. So this says, no, there's a way, and there's a number of slogans under this point, there's a way that we can live with some ease and some happiness, uh, even in this crazy world. So those are the seven points. So I thought I would read you a few of, this, of the slogans and uh, you know, some discussion of them. And then I'll stop with that. So this is under the uh, 
sixth point, the discipline of relationships. Here's the slogan. Don't talk about faults. F-A-U-L-T-S. Don't talk about faults. If you were to practice this slogan, literally, absolutely, it would do wonders for your relationships. Right? You, you already can see this. Yeah. Imagine if you just had this ironclad rule that you would never, under any circumstances, discuss the faults of others. Maybe you could try this for a couple of days. You know? Maybe you could get through a couple of days like this. And if you try it for a couple of days, what will happen is you will be shocked to discover just how much of what you say and hear involves in one way or another discussing the faults of others. You don't notice it until you say, I'm not going to do it. Then you notice, oh my God, you know, that's all we ever talk about. <laughs> so if you did not talk about this, you would instantly be transformed in, into an unusually likable human being. <laughs> Other people, without knowing you know, why, would be drawn to you. And this is because it is so normal for people to speak critically, even disparagingly, of one another. Even friends do it about other friends. People that they love do it about each other. And although we all enjoy this kind of uh, innocent, seemingly innocent gossip, the truth is that underneath this enjoyment there's a certain anxiety here. Because while you and I are talking about her, and you know, not entirely generously, both of us are thinking, without kind of knowing we're thinking this, I wonder what she is going to say to her when I'm not around. In other words, we all know, sort of like, that if we do this and we all do this, that's probably being done about us when we're not around. So this makes us wary of one another. Ever so slightly, but distinctly wary of one another. And this wariness of each other is so completely normal that we don't even think of it as wariness. But we are. We're slightly nervous about each other all the time. So the person who wasn't like this, who never spoke of the faults of others, who was consistently forgiving and supportive, would really stand out. But the problem, you might say, is, well, yes, that's a great theory, but Sometimes, you know, you can't avoid. I mean, sometimes people are so terrible, you know, that you have to, what are you going to do? You're going to pretend that they're nice when they're, when they're really these awful people? It's not practical, really. And what if, what if you're their supervisor or something, and you have to, or their parent, and you have to straighten them out? You know, you, you, it's impossible. People often do act really nasty, you know, and so how do you not talk about their faults when they have glaring faults. Well, the fact is, uh, when someone is acting badly, 
when somebody is, is being really nasty or obnoxious or corrupt or cruel or even just plain stupid or incompetent, you're speaking of that person's faults in a harsh or critical way. However deserving of such speech the person may be, will not help. In fact, it'll make a bad situation worse. And this will be true whether you speak to the person directly or just snipe behind their back to other people. The person will always, of course, eventually under, uh, un, un, discover you know, that you've done this because somebody tells him. Or even if he doesn't discover it, he'll sense it you know, in your attitude. And this is the way a person who behaves badly will have experienced other people over and over again, right? People who are not very generous or complimentary to him because of his behavior. He's experiencing this over and over again. And so he feels continually upset, attacked. Maybe his own fault. Nevertheless, his experience is that He's getting all this dislike coming his way. And so he thinks, well, people are the really rotten. They don't like you. And I know what to do about people who don't like you. I don't like them either. And I'm going to be obnoxious and difficult. So it's a kind of endless cycle, you see. The traditional wording of this slogan is very telling. It says, don't speak of injured limbs. Don't speak of injured limbs. The concept is that everyone who acts or speaks destructively or foolishly or even incompetently is exactly like a person with an injured limb. If you see somebody with a deformed hip or with stumps for legs in the street, the injury is obvious. And just as we would never criticize someone for having an injury like that, although we recognize that it is an injury and we can note the limitations that come from it, just the same way we wouldn't criticize that person. Also, we shouldn't be critical of the person with an inner injury that is the ultimate cause of that person's poor conduct. In just the same way, we can recognize the injury and the limitations that it engenders and we can respect that. And you can always count on the fact that people who behave badly have been injured. And if it's your place to correct them, then do so with that in mind, with some understanding and some sympathy, not with just moral indignation and dislike. Such people need to figure out how to heal their wounds someday, and very likely you're speaking to them or about them harshly and with disrespect is not going to bring that about. It will not inspire them or you or other listeners. In fact, the opposite will probably be the case. Speaking to or about a wounded, nasty person with kindness and warmth when, as I say, the person has been conditioned by almost all of his or her relationships to expect the opposite, may indeed cause almost miraculous transformations.
But this is hard, if not impossible, to do if you don't really see and appreciate the injury in the first place. If you only see the fault on the outside and not the injury on the inside, you can't do that. So, practicing don't talk about faults would involve noticing when you do this, remembering that there's always an injury behind every fault, softening a little bit, and then maybe little by little, seeing if you can authentically and truly learn how to speak differently, see differently, and speak differently. So that's pretty good. Don't talk about faults. That would be a good practice. I recommend it. I try to practice that. So one more. There's another good one. Also uh, in the discipline of relationships. Don't figure others out. <laughs> Why would everybody laugh when I... Uh, all these slogans are, are... You know, everybody laughs because... I think, I, th I think we know why we laugh, right? <laughs> so who, who here could ever claim to understand another person? You're all meditators, so you know that if you sit in meditation just for 15 minutes, you very quickly come to realize that you don't even understand yourself. <laughs> You're amazed at the kind of stuff that's swirling around, you know, in your mind. You just never thought that it was that bad, you know. <laughs> you thought you knew yourself, but you sat down for 15 minutes and you said, oh boy, I'm not sure I want to stay there for the next 15 minutes. There's so much going on in our lives that we are unaware of. And when you stop and let it appear, it's very contradictory and confusing. So, if it's hard to fathom oneself, how in the world can anybody seriously believe that we could figure out someone else? Yet again, think of all the time that we have spent analyzing and discussing our friends, especially our close friends and our relatives, and we speak about this with a straight face, as if we could actually see, like, what is going on with them? We, we, as if we knew. We agree, we will agree, this is what's going on with her, this is what's wrong with her and with him. But who could seriously, when you think about it, ever imagine that we know what makes another person tick? One of my friends has a very wise saying about this. He says, We judge ourselves by our intentions. We judge others by the effects of their actions on us. Isn't that right? We know our own intentions. But the only thing we know about the other person is the effects of their actions on us. And this explains why, not 50% of the time, not 60 or even 80% of the time, but 100% of the time, when we're in a conflict, we're always on the right side. Have you noticed this? <laughs> Have you ever been in a conflict, a bitter conflict, when you said, yes, it's a horrible conflict, and she's right? No, no. It's a horrible conflict, because you're always right. And why are you always right? 
because you know you have good intentions. You didn't mean to do those things. Your intentions were perfectly good, but you don't know their intentions. So you assume them based on the effects of their actions on you. So this slogan says, you know, forget about all that. When you find yourself thinking about someone else's motives, needs, feelings, and figuring them out, if you have this slogan memorized and you let it pop up in your mind, just in the mid-sentence, you'll realize, don't figure others out. Oh, there I go again. That's no good. You'll stop. And you'll recognize that all these thoughts and perceptions are about, you th about the other person are probably not right. Just remind yourself, you know, I really don't know what's going on with them. So I'm probably better off assuming that everybody, just like me, is trying their best. And everybody, just like me, is slightly confused and a little bit lost as we march along this, on this human journey that is so difficult. We try our best to be supportive of, of our friends. That's a good thing. Sometimes our friends come to us and ask for our advice, and maybe we give it, and that's good. But in the end, probably the best thing that we could do for our friends, or for anyone, is to let them alone, profoundly alone, in the recognition that they are so much more than we could ever understand. Leaving them alone doesn't mean abandoning them. It doesn't mean not loving them. It means recognizing their full human dignity, recognizing that we do not have the power to figure them out or change them or fix them, and that maybe they don't need changing or fixing. Practicing don't figure others out is training our minds to recall, even in the midst of controversy with others, that we really don't know what's in another's heart and that whatever we imagine is probably wrong. To be sure, there are some times when we will have to imagine what somebody else is thinking or feeling and so on. There may be practical reasons for that. But even when we have to do that, we do it with great humility knowing that we, we're trying our best, but probably there's much more than we will ever know. So those are two of the 59 uh, slogans that are discussed in the book. And uh, some of them, uh, like these that we're talking about tonight, are quite practical uh, tools for checking how we are in relationship. You know, we, we, we do our lives quite... I mean, when you think about it, it's quite stunning. You know, we do our lives quite by rote and by habit. We don't really pay attention. You know, how are we speaking? How are we treating one another? How are we conducting ourselves in relation to our own thoughts and feelings? So these slogans are for the purpose of giving us a kind of, uh, almost like waving a hand in our face and saying, look, 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 stop here, stop, and pay attention. Look, see what's going on. Is this, does this make sense? Could you do it differently? So it's everything from very practical kinds of uh, advice like that to more profound uh, aspects of the teachings about 
you know, identity and compassion and so on. So anyway, that's what I wanted to share with you tonight. Probably we have uh, a few minutes, no? Sure. So if there's, if there's uh, comments, questions. Yes? Um, in this practice of not uh, talking about other people's faults, do you include yourself that therefore you wouldn't be talking to yourself about your own faults? And if so, how then um, do you work with the practice of assessing mm -hmm. yourself and knowing where you are mm -hmm. on the path? Yes. She brings up a very astute point. I hope everybody could hear her. Uh, everybody heard? Not everybody. So she said, uh, does this extend, uh, not talking about faults, does this, this extend to oneself, not talking about one's own faults? And if so, how are you going to assess uh, yourself? One of the other points was assess and extend if you don't talk about your own faults. So that's a really good point. And there are several uh, things about that. The first thing is that one of the uh, themes of the slogans over and over again is how... Um, The difference between others and oneself is uh, far less fundamental than one thinks. So in other words, you discover that the way you look at yourself is the way you look at others. The way you look at others is the way you look at yourself. Compassion has to be developed for yourself as well as for others. If you don't have the capacity to accept your own suffering, there's no way you can accept the suffering of others and vice versa. So, yes, uh, there's a kind of mixing of self and others. So, yes, not talking about the faults of others also would involve not talking about one's own faults. Um, so, uh, the art of assessing, you know, where one is going wrong without making that into a personal fault is a tricky business, but actually quite unmistakable. Because... Uh, What's painful is, I'm a bad person. I can't do this. I'm incompetent. I'm, I'm unable to you know, do spiritual practice. That's a very different thought from this action was unwholesome and producing trouble. Let's choose another action. Very different flavor. So we, we learned the difference. We learn the difference, be difference between uh, self-judgment, self-criticism, self-denigration, and uh, the need to assess our practice and our conduct and to change course when it's, when it's needed. Um, that's the, you know, in education, uh, assessment is not to figure out who's good and who's bad and who's smart and who's not smart. Assessment in education is to figure out what have you learned and what, where, where do you need to learn where you haven't learned yet. So you have to have that attitude in relation to your spiritual practice. Oh, I did that, and boy, the results there were no good. And I see that that was a very unskillful way of doing it, and so that's not, that's not how I'm going to do it next time. So I don't have to you know, kill myself off or disrespect myself for that. I just say, okay, good. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes? We're going to try to get the mic to you. Who, 
Please raise your hand again and we'll get the mic back there. Yeah. All the way back there is difficult. Yeah. I've tried this um, for a while, not speaking false about others. And mm -hmm. I, I fall into a trap at work with certain colleagues where that's the means of communication is kind of yes. bemoaning others at work. Right. And so yeah. then when you it's don't... often the case. Yeah. Then when you don't... When, and then when I try not to get into that and speak false and change the subject, the conversations just kind of end up flat. Uh -huh. Or I'm not part of the club anymore. Right. Or and so then I find myself slipping back into it. Right. And and then I'm like, oh, I didn't want to do that, you know. So I'm just curious if you had any recommendations around that. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Well, uh, yes, I'm familiar with that, how that works. Uh, Somehow, this reminds me of uh, Nelson Mandela is sick now, you know? It reminds me of a story about him. Uh, I think you'll see in a minute how it, how it connects. To make the story brief, when Mandela was uh, imprisoned, it was standard procedure for members of the African National Congress who were in prison not to cooperate with the authorities. It was a, it was a, a kind of mark of their defiance. But when Mandela was arrested, he cooperated. Uh, and it made him unpopular among his colleagues, but he cooperated. But he cooperated in a particular way. He um, did everything at his own pace. So although they said, you know, do this, do that, he would do this and he would do that, but he would do it in his own pace, with his own dignity and his own presence. He would not do it in a servile manner. And uh, the story goes that by the end of the time that he was incarcerated, the entire prison was going at his pace. The entire prison was, little by little, had been brought around to Mandela's pace. And, it was and that was why the uh, authorities of the prison were the ones who set up his, his um, meetings with members of the government, which the other prisoners in the prison were, would have been totally against. So they had to do it in a, like a separate wing. They had to do it in secret. In other words, Mandela was in collusion with the prison authorities to enable him to have negotiations with the government that eventually led to his being released and becoming president of South Africa. So the, the way it applies is that you have to uh, have a lot of patience and a lot of strength in your point of view. And, and yes, at first uh, it might seem awkward, but I think eventually you'll, in, instead of having to join the club as the club is now constituted, or leave the club, you can transform the club, <laughs> little by little by little, if you are, you are as firm and as strong and as persistent. It took Man Mandela many years right, to do this, but he was determined. And I think we all have to be just that determined. Um, because the people who are doing this kind of talking, they're not evil people. They're not cruel and nasty people. They're just doing what comes naturally to everybody, right? It happens to be not a good thing, and it happens to be hurtful, but they don't really realize that. So you're not, there's no need for you to denigrate them, right? Or, so you just um, know 
how you want to be and how you want to speak about other people. And uh, so, you know, I I'll, I'll often resort to uh, the famous, hmm, oh, oh. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, so I'm not, I'm not like walking away from them or giving a disapproving look. I mean, if they're telling me, they say, oh, hmm, really? No kidding, yeah. <laughs> And then often uh, it's possible to say yes and uh, like, you know, the other day somebody was complaining about somebody who definitely deserved, you know, the complaints. And I said, yes, that's really true. You know, I I understand how you feel. But don't forget, um, he's he's really, he's dying. He's got an illness and he won't live very long. And the person didn't know that. You know, so I said, you know, that's no excuse for that kind of the things that he said. I understand, but don't forget that you know he's under this kind of situation. He has he can hardly breathe anymore, and he doesn't know how long he's going to live, and he's really lonely. And so maybe I can understand why he talks like that, even though we'll have to tell him he can't do that. But still, so that kind of thing is often possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have a, work, a similar uh, workplace-related question. Um, I'm in the midst now of doing several performance reviews for mm-hmm. people yes, who work yes, for me. Right. And uh, one of the expectations is um, that I identify things to improve. Yeah. Uh, so while I could imagine this practice, you know, I have a certain amount of choices around practices, but sometimes the systems that I'm part of, yeah. I don't have quite the same choice. Yeah. So I just wanted to get any reflections of sort of institutional life and how we've institutionalized identifying and focusing on faults and how we navigate that yeah. in our collective life, even though um, we might be able to have different choices in our individual life. Any, yeah. I'd love to hear some reflections on how yeah. we navigate that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how uh, something like, like regular performance reviews theoretically are re- a really good idea. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like a very humane, really. It's a very humane and good uh, interpersonal relationship hygiene. You know, it really is. But it often doesn't work out that way. Mm. Uh, So I I think the best thing, if I were in that position, what I would do is uh, I would spend some time, let's say tomorrow morning I'm going to go to work and I'm going to have to do five performance reviews tomorrow. What I would do is I would spend some time uh, sitting at my desk and, and just bringing up in my mind's eye each person that I was going to talk to that day. And I would do like a compassion practice for that person. I would tune myself to that person and get to the place. If I, and I would notice, like if, it, if I surfaced some bad feeling I had about the person or some disrespect, I, had, I would notice that. And I would say, oh, I didn't know I, that was there. Let me be careful about mm-hmm. that. But I would try to be cultivating a positive uh, and sympathetic feeling toward that person. Because I think the key here is not like, what do you say and how do you say it? The key is, how do you feel? And what's your true attitude when you say it? Because you could say the same words, and they could come out one way, or they could come out another way. So I think it's worth spending some time uh, working on your, just your gut reaction to each person and trying to cultivate a reaction of compassion and connection with that person. And then, and then whatever you, they'll, I mean, it's, from their point of view, 
it's of course a horrendous thing mm -hmm. to come in front of somebody that's going to, so they're going to be nervous and upset and you can't really control how they're going to feel, but you can do your best to really be straight with yourself yeah. and have a good feeling for them. One variation on the challenge is that the forms themselves yeah. don't really have compassion built into the boxes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, other than lying, like exceeding expectations. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I realize that the, there's the way to show up with the person, and I, I, I also just think systemically faults are... Yeah. Well, uh, uh, that's another in thing. In the there, there, There's a way, there, there may be ways if you're in a position to critique the forms and improve them, and certainly that can be done. But when you're face-to-face -face with someone, it's a lot more than this box, right? That's the point. It's, it's a lot more than the box, yeah. Anyway, maybe, maybe one more. There's one last one over here, and then... This is good. This is a practical, practical discussion. Excellent. None of this spiritual stuff, you know. <laughs> Get down to business. I just love um, what you've talked about tonight. It was just wonderful. Thank you so much. And is this is this your book? Is it in print? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes, it is. Is I it here can, tonight? I have no idea. You, you can find it. <laughs> okay. If it's not here, you can easily get it. But also, you mentioned um, Nelson Mandela. Yeah. And they were asking today over KPFA for prayers. That yes. they've, yeah. Africa is, is in deep prayer. So I just wanted to ask if you'd lead us in a chant or something from Nelson Mandela. Mm. If you can. Thank you. Yeah, well... Um, um, We can do a simple chant for Nelson Mandela. That would be a great way to end our evening. We can do a simple, uh, a simple chant that goes. Uh, the syllables are uh, Namu, Dai, Bo, Sa, and we just chant it in, in a monotone a number of times, and then I'll ring the bell, and, and as we chant, we'll know that we're dedicating the benefit of this chant uh, to Nelson Mandela. Namu Dae Bosa, 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 Namu Dae Namo Dai Bosa, 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 Namo
namo daivo sa namo daivo sa namo daivo sa Thanks everybody for coming. Pleasure to sit with you and talk with you tonight. Take care of yourselves. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.